Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm extremely excited for today's conversation with Adam Nash, who is the CEO and co-founder of Daffy, previously also CEO of Wealthfront on the board of Acorns. And Adam's got a very deep background in fintech on the front lines. His new company is focused on donations and the charity space. And so I'm really excited to learn more about what's happening there. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Lex, thanks for having me. Great to be here. It's my pleasure. Let's start with your career and your background and kind of your formative experience that brought you into the technology space. What were your earliest fundamental career skills that you picked up? Like, which direction did you go? Well, you know, I, I think like a lot of folks in Silicon Valley, I, I came out with an engineering degree, very focused and excited about what you could do with software. My my master's degree was in human-computer interaction, which is all about you know how humans interface with technology and where that goes wrong. And as it turns out, it you know there's a lot of commonality between the way people interact with technology and the way people interact with money. So there was always a little bit of a connection there: the study of behavioral finance versus you know the study of how humans understand what they're doing with technology. So I, I think I went off my my first job. I thought I was joining a company called Next. But it turned out that Apple acquired it in the middle of my interview cycle. So I ended up working at Apple just at those moments when Steve came back. I was working on technology called Web Objects. We were part of the Rhapsody team. Rhapsody is the code name that became Mac OS X and eventually iOS and all the operating system stuff that Apple does. But it was an amazing time because it was, you know, layoffs and you know, hopefully a turnaround, which turned out better than expected. I don't know if I ever expected that 30 years later, we'd be living in a world where Apple was the <laughs> most valuable company in the world. But it's been amazing to watch. What was the size of the company during the layoffs? And then what did it feel like? Like, how much confidence was there about the direction things were going? Like, what was that experience like? It was tough. When I started, obviously, I had been an intern before, so I hadn't even seen the company under Gil Emilio. You know, it just felt like there was bad news constantly. You know, journalists were writing about the death of an American icon and, and how Apple was gone. Um, there were layoffs every few weeks. There used to be this small restaurant outside Infinite Loop, the headquarters, called the Pepper Mill. And it became the regular joining spot where everyone after Fridays would, would go and commiserate with the folks who had been laid off. So it was really sad. When Steve came back full time, though, there was a different energy. I think some hope, a lot of skepticism. I wrote about this when Steve passed away, but it was very influential on me to see how a turnaround happened. I mean, I was only 22 at the time, so I obviously had a lot to learn. But watching Steve bring together a team and kind of that combination of no nonsense about how hard it was going to be and, and what we needed to do to be successful as a company combined with a vision 
an idea of what role Apple could play in the future world. It was an exciting thing to see. And then obviously, since we got to see how the movie played out, I think back about that time a lot. And I feel lucky to have gone through it. And obviously, we go through booms and busts in Silicon Valley. And so it turns out having that experience early in your career really does set you up for the inevitable cycles that you're going to face building companies. Two things on that. The first is, at that age, I was experiencing the Lehman bankruptcy, and that company did not get turned around. And I wonder what lessons you were lucky to take away that, in my case, didn't stick because you can see things almost make it and then go on to grow and be right, and you can see things just completely melt down and kind of dissolve. I wonder how you think about that. Like, are you an eternal optimist because of that? Like, how do you categorize that learning? Well, I mean, look, I, I do bias optimistic. I think it's even in my Twitter profile for for years and years that I'm I'm inevitably optimistic, I like to say. But no, I, I think actually being through that turnaround, it's so difficult. So first of all, I mean, I, I have some friends who, who are involved tangentially with Lehman, but I can't personally speak to that experience. That would have must have been a lot to deal with on, on many dimensions. And I think that people at companies always struggle because, you know, most people, they have to interface what's going on with the company and what's going on with the industry with what's going on with them personally and what they're trying to do with their careers and their lives. But for me, what Steve did at Apple, which was amazing, was, like I said, it was that combination of, of realism of how hard it is to find a place in such a competitive industry combined with some idea of what role you could play. And so, I mean, the story has been told before, but I, you know, it, it bears retelling. Like I, I was there at the meeting at Rhapsody where Steve got up on stage in front of the entire team, probably 150 of us, maybe on the Rhapsody team, uh, a little bit more. And Michael Dell, who was huge at the time, still huge, but, but huge at the time, had just done an interview the day before where he had been asked what he would do if he was running Apple. If this sounds familiar with any tech companies today. And Michael, of course, said something to the line, along the lines that he would liquidate the company and return the cash to shareholders because there's some things you can't fix. And Steve got up there with a giant picture of Michael Dell on the wall and said, you know what? He's right. If we keep coming into work every day, just building beige, boring computers, the world doesn't need another Dell, doesn't need another Compaq, right? And then he asked, what market share... You know, he, 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 he said, what market share does BMW have? There are some questions, by the way, when Steve asked, you actually didn't want to answer them. But he, he asked, what market share does BMW have? And of course, he said, don't know. That's right. You don't know and you don't care. It's about one and a half percent. But no one cares because all you care about BMW is you're either driving one or you're watching one driving by. He's like, our job is to make products that people don't just love, but that they lust after, that they have to have. And he believed that Apple could play that role, that, that the consumer market, that computers were increasingly moving to less being about feeds and speeds and about capabilities, but to what's, what they could solve for people and the importance of music and the creative arts and, and all these things. But you know, he was willing. He told the whole company, he said, listen, this is going to be like a startup. We're going to be working hard. We're going to be have, working late nights. It's not for everyone. It's not what you signed up for. And so if you're not signed up for the next few years of hard work, that's okay. Really appreciate all that you've done for the company, but you're not going to want to take this next journey. And if you're ready, I think this could be one of the most consequential journeys of your career. And I'm not, I don't want to defend everything that Steve said or, or, or did at the time, but it was really 
amazing to watch because the company really did pull together then. A lot of people did leave who were not up for that journey and that that workload and, and, and what needed to happen. And then there were a lot of people who did. For me personally, I stayed for a while and then I jumped to a startup because it was, you know, it was the late 90s and jumping to startups was one of the things <laughs> that people did. I think back on it, it really, it makes sense. And, you know, I've seen it later times, as you pointed out, there's been several booms and busts since then. And you always see companies try to do these turnarounds. They rarely succeed because in my view, companies are rarely willing to let go of the past and what they were and just march towards a future which might be smaller initially, right? Startups, don't worry about that. Startups start small. It's so hard for incumbents, for existing companies to kind of let go of portions of what they did before and then focus on where they think the future is going to be. But Apple did an amazing job of it. And I mean, let's not let's be honest, there were some inspired and lucky breaks along the way that, that made it happen. But it was an amazing way to start a career, as it turns out. It's a stark example relative to, you know, the poetry of Elon Musk's tweets and the the style of the restructuring that's going on at Twitter. These situations do repeat, but they can generate very different outcomes depending on the person that is driving. And I think for me, that's also a learning from crisis that end of the day, the structures and the systems that come together to create the crisis or create the market or the pricing or the disconnect or whatever it is, the pressure, those are large macro forces often. But the effort to build is not abstract. It's very individual. And so tell us about your experience during the internet boom your experience in building and how it pulled you towards eBay and towards other successful Web2 companies? You know, Apple went off. Like I said, Steve had a vision that computing was going to move to a new age where we were going to go from one to many devices and that he saw a future for a computer that was at the center of that, you know, the kind of center of media in the home, I think at the time. Multimedia was still... Thing that people talked about in the 90s. But yeah, with the internet boom, I jumped to a startup that focused on what we called at the time electronic software distribution, which is basically a fancy term for, for app stores. We just didn't have that term yet. <laughs> we actually did well enough to go public at the end of 99, which I, I like to joke is not as big a deal as people think because every company went public in the end of 99. But the truth is I was a little dissatisfied and and growing cynical about what I was seeing in the Valley in the late 90s. It, it almost seemed like startups were being put together from the S1 backwards, right? The S1 is the document you prepare to go public, a legal document. And I felt like there had to be more to building software and building companies than what I was seeing in the Valley in the 90s. And so I ended up going to business school, which I know is, for some people, popular, for some not in Silicon Valley. But I actually found it a wonderful experience. I got to work with wonderful faculty and professors, advisors, met incredible people, did a project with Clay Christensen, right? You know, on, on you know, he had just written his book a few years before on disruptive innovation, you know, the innovator's dilemma. I learned a lot. And it was very formative. I, I came out of business school. I was in venture capital for a couple of years. I was a contrarian. I thought it was a wonderful time to be in venture in 2001, 2002, because there were amazing founders and amazing companies and very few people willing to write checks to fund them. And of course, I learned the hard way that it turns out that, you know, in bear markets, you know, the whole market can work against you in a number of ways. But I met amazing founders and entrepreneurs at that time. And it really crystallized for me 
how much I wanted to build things and get out there and, 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 and still operate. And so when, when they folded on, in Silicon Valley, the venture firm I was with, I ended up looking around for companies that were still growing. There were very few. I'd become a big believer in growth. And so one of the companies that was growing rapidly was a Web 1.0 company called eBay. And I got very lucky. There were such phenomenal people at eBay in the early 2000s. Learned a lot about web product there. Learned a lot about metrics-based product, A-B testing, growth, strategy. So I was there at eBay for, for four years. I, I like to joke that I was there for, for two really good years and, and two very hard years. But that was also a lesson by itself. And then, of course, in 2007, I got introduced to Reid Hoffman, who had founded a company called LinkedIn and, and made the leap over into Web 2.0. What did you see in terms of behavior, financial behavior on eBay? What kinds of patterns were becoming more clear? And I guess my bias that I'm bringing to the question is trying to remember this objection that people had about, I'm never going to use credit cards online. I don't trust eBay. I can't shop there. Like, how are they going to deliver it? All this stuff that, you know, goes into the dustbins of history. But I wonder what your experience was like dealing with those behaviors, discovering them, and then what types of things could be taken to de-risk these frontier spaces for people? Well, I think there's actually a very insightful point there. I'm glad you asked this question. I mean, I learned a lot at eBay. Like I said, those early Web 1.0 giants that survived the forest fire of the bubble bursting, of course, all became massive. Which actually, I think, is a lesson that, you know, in, in any industry, when you clear out a lot of competition and funding, the remaining survivors actually have a lot of room to run and succeed if they execute well. But I learned a lot at eBay at, at every level. I learned about technology and scaling and what it meant to scale a site to kind of web scale, which turned out to be amazingly valuable. I did a lot of my early technical work also on the product side. You know, a lot of the patents that have my name on them come from working on search systems and relevant systems in e-commerce back when that was new. So there was a lot of fundamental capabilities in Web 1.0 that made Web 2.0 and fintech possible. But I love that you focused on the difficulty of getting people to put their credit card in. Most people have forgotten that, that one of the biggest challenges in the, not just for the first couple of years of the web, but, but more than a decade was getting people to have enough faith to even put a payment method online, which, which was always interesting. You know, there were people who suggested that they, people would never trust technically something like the web to put their credit card in and never made complete sense to me. I mean, people were sitting there in restaurants handing their credit card to, you know, a 16-year-old waiter, but somehow somehow entering it on a website was was going to be this big mental block. Robots, but, um, yeah. We, we spent a, a lot of time on it. We even had a term, I, I forget the exact term, I think it was something like a high consideration purchase or a high value purchase at eBay, which was designed for categories where the items were so expensive, you couldn't possibly expect people to just buy them online without seeing them. And I think we had that number set to $250 for years, right? That's how difficult we thought it was to get people to buy things online, was the idea that if you bought something over $250, you wouldn't just put your credit card in and do it. You had to have more of an interaction, more trust. But yeah, there were a lot of common elements that became relevant in Web 2.0 and fintech in particular, right? You know, the fact that money is a trust business and what are all the ways that you can build trust with the community? How do you organize a large group of consumers when you don't have a sales force, you can't talk to them, they don't work for you? But eBay scaled to having millions and millions of sellers on the platform and, of course, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of buyers. How you run almost a social system like that 
I think the Web 1.0 companies just poked at that and tried to figure that out in their initial businesses. And of course, Web 2.0 iterated on that again. So I see a lot of commonality in those problems. But, you know, with every generation of technology, it always seems to the skeptics like people won't take that next step, that they won't trust technology with whatever problem, you know, technology is pushing on the frontier. But inevitably, over the last 50 years, the lesson has been that as people get used to technology, as innovators come up with new products and services and frame things well, the technology changes in terms of what's possible and consumer attitudes shift in terms of what they trust and what they consider high quality. And I think that latter one gets missed a lot by engineers and technologists in the space, that the consumers themselves change. It's not just technology. It's not just Moore's Law and Metcalf's law and capabilities. It's also the fact that the average consumer shifts in terms of what they want and what they will trust. At the very beginning of our conversation, you mentioned people's relationship to money and technology. And I was actually going to ask you, you know, what is money and what is technology? Because I think it plugs into these moments where we don't see the people that connect all of it together, where you know, money is a technology that people use to increase their cognition, right? Increase their ability to interact in an economy or in, in commerce. And technology is just a way to enhance what humans and individuals can do more of, the things that they want to do more of. They're just expanding that out. And so I think there's no abstraction that is money or technology in itself. It has to, end of the day, root back in the people you're trying to serve, the customers that you're trying to serve. And I think that's why so much of the Silicon Valley movement around product has been successful, because it does start with the individual and with their preferences. I do want to switch us to the next leg, which is kind of LinkedIn and then towards Wealthfront. And I want to ask a question about product. All of a sudden, Web1 type websites and platforms started to have software embedded in them and started to have the potential for interactions, for engagement, and for all sorts of kind of value and utility that previously wasn't possible. And I think that also opens up the routes to kind of trapping money inside of software. While you were at LinkedIn, what did you see from the perspective of like what product was capable of doing? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I've been thinking a lot about the transition from Web 1.0 to Web 2.0 lately, particularly because I, I see some of the same transitions potentially happening in fintech, which, which gets to my current company, Daffy. But going back to Web 2.0 and what was going on at LinkedIn, basically Web 1.0 had happened and in many ways had been phenomenally successful despite the dot-com bust. I mean, eBay, Yahoo, Amazon, if we want to throw Google in there, we're doing really well and making real money and, and had grown into really phenomenal businesses. But there had been a couple problems along the way with Web 1.0 that had, had really challenged the economics of the industry. You know, one was it turned out that content was particularly hard to scale. You could certainly get a few articles written up and, and write content, but the idea of hiring hundreds and hundreds or thousands of writers started looking cost prohibitive to the businesses that were being discussed. And then the second problem was user acquisition in terms of cost. Like it just got too expensive. Some of the bubble bursting had exposed that it just wasn't economic to acquire all your customers through paid acquisition, given what was going on at the time. 
And so Web 2.0 was based on solving for those two problems in a unique way, plus another unique opportunity. They solved for content with a theory that said, well, maybe there's a way to organize people. User-generated content became an idea. Maybe there's a way to actually get the community of people using a product or platform to supply the content to actually make the entity better. And it had a, a network effect to it to boot. And then, of course, on acquisition, there'd been a lot of innovation, but the biggest one was how could you build products, which, which what we now call product-led growth, where basically they sold themselves, where your users love the product, or more importantly, to use the product, users need other users on the platform to make it valuable. And so their incentives were to add people, even if you didn't pay them. If you remember back in the 90s, everyone was just paying everyone to add folks, right? PayPal famously gave everyone $10. And through millions that way, just to get them on the platform. But the biggest difference in Web 2.0 from a product standpoint was that Web 1.0, for the most part, I mean, there's some exceptions, including eBay, but for the most part, Web 1.0 involved taking products and services that had been offline and just bringing them online. It was basically a technology proof, right? We can take this catalog, we can take this business, and we can actually do it on the web instead of doing it over the phone. Or, or doing it face-to-face. -face. In Web 2.0, people were thinking more broadly. They were thinking about novel products and services, right? LinkedIn really doesn't look like Monster, right? Like if you were academically looking at Monster, you'd say, oh, there's two sites here. They both let you post a resume. They both have job postings. They both have the ability to communicate with recruiters. You know, there's some, you know, PowerPoint version of the two that would argue that they were the same. But the truth is LinkedIn was a very different concept and product. It was it was fundamentally, you know, the design centric view of LinkedIn was was very much that there's two valuable things you build in your career. You have who you know and, and what you know. And that in some ways the modern labor market was broken and that people did not have good tools to invest in control and amplify those two things. And so this idea that there would be a place online where people invested their reputation and their relationships, and that would become a platform to solve all sorts of business problems was really an insight that Reed and the others, you know, don't get enough credit for. And it was very hard to see at the time. Everyone was very focused on B2B software in the early 2000s and selling to companies. Everyone was very focused on the fact that social networks hadn't really figured out how to make money. I mean, I cannot tell you how many recruiting meetings I was in where people would ask me, is LinkedIn ever going to make money? And I'd say things like, well, you know, we, we made over 12 million last year, like we're making real money. But it was, it was kind of a funny thing, given that LinkedIn is now a 10 billion a year business. But yeah, no, product turned out to be the core of it. And I think that the big innovation that Web2.0 brought to the space was designing people into products and services as actually part of the platform, part of the consideration. We, we started forming, you know, I ran the user experience and design team at LinkedIn for two years. You know, design was going through a rebirth and renewal in software, design-centric thinking, bringing art and creative thinking, being able to talk about emotions. Certainly, I don't think that, you know, everyone got it right in all the products and services they built. But it was really a very novel time where now things that we take for granted when we build software. Who is your software for? What are they using it for? How do they feel about it? What problem are they trying to solve? You, you mentioned trust, you know, with fintech, you know, all those questions. I don't think we would have been able to do fintech the way we did it if Web 2.0 hadn't happened. 
and basically standardize that concept that no design matters because your customers matter and their emotions matter and how they think about the problem matters. And that's part of the software problem you have to solve. That is such an important aspect of digital distribution and figuring out how to connect with people, get their attention and speak to them through these digital interfaces, you know, and it's like the opposite. You have to be even more persuasive and even more simple and attractive because you are interacting with somebody through a website or a mobile app. You're not in person. You can't rely on charisma or charm or just a vibe. You have to rely on design and attention. And that can go in really good directions, and it can also go in terrible directions, as we've seen with the attention platforms getting out of hand. But I wonder how you took that, the Web2 approach to building software, and how did that connect to your interactions and building companies in the fintech and the money space, right? So Wealthfront being at least in my view, an extension of the Silicon Valley product thinking to to wealth and digital wealth, your engagement with Acorns. You know, what were some of the initial hypotheses around extending the Silicon Valley method to financial services? And you know, how did it go? How do you think that thesis evolved? That's another great question. I love that you're focusing on the hypotheses because it is near and dear to my heart. I, I often tell founders, I mean, I'm obviously an active angel investor and, you know, talk to a lot of other folks, but the, the, the basic idea of having theories that, that even building companies is a hypothesis, that there is a sustainable, profitable business to be built in a space does come down to, you know, some new theories about what's possible. So FinTech, you know, what happened after LinkedIn is Reed had joined Greylock Partners as a partner. I ended up going over soon after as an EIR. And I spent about a year, year and a half at Greylock. At the time, there wasn't a term for fintech. That wasn't a word I ever heard. But we were seeing initial financial applications. Mint had just sold to Intuit, not for a venture class outcome, but for you know 170 million. It was enough to get attention. And I had a theory, you know, I, I, I had a chance. I had a lot of free reign at Greylock in 2012. I got to meet a lot of great founders. And and you know, if you meet great founders, Usually they have a clue. They they have an insight that makes you think. And you know, that was the year you know I met Brian Armstrong, Coinbase. You know met Ken at Credit Karma. I met Bo at Future Advisor, and just started seeing more and more founders who believe that now was the time when you could actually build financial applications and for consumers. Now I I love this idea. I mean my senior project at Stanford had been building a better Quicken back in the 90s. So I've always loved this idea of using software to help people with their money based on a long-standing belief that I had that actually computers would likely be more rational and more reliable at handling money problems than humans are. But you know, with seeing these companies got me very, very excited. And of course, with Wealthfront, I met Andy Ratcliffe, Dan Carroll, and made the jump, which led to me being CEO there for four years. Which was was wonderful, but the, the thesis was basically twofold. One was a theory around social software. You're right, Web 2.0, which was that with Web 2.0, we had learned enough about designing for emotion that we actually could approach this problem of trust, right? That we had progressed as an industry, it had been 20 years, that it was now we were getting to the point where people were comfortable enough with computers and that there are people who have been using computers enough of their lives that they would start trusting financial tasks to it, that they would trust a computer with their money. 
And then, of course, the second big innovation was business model, right? The original software industry was very focused on just selling software directly. And after the bubble burst and into the bubble bursting, software had started experimenting with a wide range of business models. And the idea that software didn't have to be a one-trick pony, that you could design the business around the business instead of around selling packaged software was actually phenomenal. And so the idea that maybe the reason previous applications that had trouble succeeding in the market wasn't the software itself, but it was partially the business model at fault, I think led a lot of founders to say, well, what if we use this other business model? What if we try it as a subscription service? What if we tie it as an AUM-driven business? What if we, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and so there's just a lot of excitement there. And so for me, those were the two theories. One of the reasons I jumped to Wealthfront was because I had a theory with another partner at Greylock, a partner named John Lilly, that we were seeing with mobile and, and social, that we were seeing the entire desktop era reinvented, that you know all the same things that had happened in the desktop era were going to happen with mobile and social. So if you remember the desktop era, the first apps that were successful, the boom were productivity apps. Then we saw graphic design right, and desktop publishing. And then later we started seeing financial applications like Quicken. And so, you know, I, I figured, of course, being someone who likes to think of themselves slightly ahead of the curve, that I would just jump to that third one, which were the financial applications. And so jump to Wealthfront. But it was very exciting because the hypothesis fundamentally turned out to be true. I mean, it turns out there are a lot of other business models out there. And I became a big believer for founders that the business model you choose shapes the destiny of the company you end up building. And then, of course, it also turned out that we had progressed, that the, the market had moved, that there were so many people who had grown up with software and computers, even with the web, that there were more and more people who not only trusted software with their money, but in some cases, preferentially trusted software, thought it was more rational and objective than perhaps a sales-based interaction with a person. And so it was a very exciting time. I think it's still an exciting time. I mean, obviously, it's now been 10 years, and we've seen about how a lot of these businesses play out and what they turn into at scale. I mean, I will tell you, when I saw Acorns launch, I, I never thought that they would have millions of paying customers for a mobile app and that they would be able to grow into something that helped people with a wide variety of financial goals in their lives. But it has been amazing to watch. And the market continues to move, right? You know what? What we thought in, you know, 10 years ago that maybe some young people would do who grew up with computers or comfort with the web, technology adoption has really exploded thanks to the pandemic, forcing everyone to basically learn quickly what they can do online and remotely. It's amazing to me how in the moment when you're building something like this, when, you know, it's 2010, 2011, and the things around look like spreadsheets with a subscription service, right? I don't remember if it was like Portfolio Monkey or there's not a lot of stuff around. And it just feels so naked to be out there saying, no, this is this is the behavior that people will have. This is really how they're going to do some of their most intimate and private activities, download a mobile app, and then probably, you know, in the case of things like Cash App or Venmo, like make it social and so on. And then it's not that the market recognizes your success and that's the answer, but rather the innovation that you spot becomes so boring to people that they don't even give you credit for it because of course it's obvious. 
of course, all your money is just in your phone and you'd never go into a bank branch or, you know, you only talk to the financial advisor for the high-end tax stuff. And of course, you just do asset allocation in an app. And to me, I think that when it becomes boring is really when it becomes part of the fabric. And I have a very similar feeling these days with crypto and crypto assets where there's this kind of just big, big divide of people saying this isn't a behavior that's going to be adopted. And at the same time, you have massive engagement and adoption by the next generation. And at some point, it'll just become boring and part of the fabric. But we've spent a lot of time of this conversation not on Daffy. So I want to make sure that we land on what it is that you're doing now and the evolution of your hypothesis and kind of what you're seeing ahead. Let's switch to that. And how did that idea come about? What drove you to do it? And what do you see ahead? Well, you know, I think like a lot of founders, startup ideas come from multiple places. And a lot of things came together. I think that made Daffy an exciting opportunity for me and now for the team. But, you know, there was a moment, I mean, this is during the pandemic, it was 2020. I was thinking about different ideas. I had a doc from when I was in the IR. I had, you know, all my different startup ideas. And I think I had 82 items on that document, by the way. If you want some of them, let me know. There's, they're not all good, um, as it turns out. <laughs> we'll crowdsource um, them, yeah. Exactly. But one of the ideas had been this list of financial products that had not been reinvented yet. Um, and the Donor Advised Fund was on there. This, this basic idea of like, yeah, what a wonderful idea. You know, the ability to put money aside for charity, get the tax deduction immediately, and then have time to figure out where your money could have the most impact, right? And then it's invested along the way. It just felt like a wonderful u- utility, right? Having this tax-deferred account. But no one knew about it, right? Only people who had high-end financial advisors and, and accountants knew about it. And it was mostly sold as an attach rate product to the to the wealthy but I couldn't figure out, it took a little while for me to think about it, to, to think about what it could be. And then, you know, there was this moment, I have kids, I have four children, they're getting older, <laughs> as it turns out, but they all went to this school that had this wonderful tradition, right? Every Friday, the kids would bring in spare change, they, they put it in a little piggy bank, and then every quarter, they vote as a class, which local nonprofit to give it to. And, and I just thought about like every piggy bank you see on Amazon has a, a slot for, you know, this is the money you can spend, this is the money to save for a rainy day, and this is the money to give. And I was like, wow, like we really teach our kids that giving is one of the fundamental things that you do with your money. And yet, didn't see adults doing the same thing. Where, where, were, where were adults putting money aside every Friday for charity? And, you know, the, the confidence I had, you know, having been on the board of Acorns for a number of years and seeing how they built that business, this idea that wow, there was a simple app that helped people save where they didn't save before, you know, kind of their spare change, et cetera. Maybe the world is ready for an app like that that could help people give. And, and so those ideas came together. I think also, let's be honest, during the pandemic, people were, it was much more top of mind how fragile communities were and who needed help in, in organizations. A lot of people's minds shifted to kind of local issues. And so it turned out one of my favorite people that I ever worked with at LinkedIn, favorite engineers, Alejandro Crosa, we had been talking about starting a company together for years. And he had done some early work on Donors Choose. And so he was very excited. And so we jumped in. Thankfully, we're able to raise a, a seed round in the end of 2020. And you know, less than a year later, we built the team and, and launched Daffy. It was the first fully functional donor advised fund app in the App Store on September 30th, 2021, when we launched. So um 
But the, the whole thesis behind Daffy is, is similar to Web 2.0 in that we've the, the market has progressed, that we're ready to do something novel and new with software. We're not just replicating a donor advised fund. We're building something different. We're, we're using the donor advised fund as a way to add value to get people into this community. But what we're excited about, what we're building in Daffy is really a, a community that's geared around the idea that there's a lot of people out there, millions of people, right? The data says over 60 to 70 million households a year in the U.S. donate to charity. We think there should be a space online for people who not only want to put money aside for those less fortunate than themselves, but actually want to engage with others about who they're giving to and, and why. And so that's that's the idea behind Daffy. I mean, the name, of course, is the Donor Advised Fund for you. But the concept is, is in some ways a very old-fashioned one, which is that putting money aside proactively for charity is a better way to give. I think what um, really resonates with me is it's almost, as we've discussed your career and your various takeaways and kind of decision rubric for, for where to go and, and what to build and where to invest in, it's like you're you're going up the Maslow hierarchy of needs, you know, for how people relate to their finances. And then increasingly that relationship is a digital relationship, right? So as you travel from you you build the device, you build the Macintosh or the iPhone, and then you build the desktop software of Quicken, and that transforms into the Web2 version and asset management and automated savings. You're transitioning the relationship that people have with money to this digital venue. But the needs are not just like, how do I pay and how do I save and invest? The needs include giving and being in a community and participating. So it's almost like the full direction of that journey for you. Yeah, no, there's a lot of truth to that journey. And it's partially truth because I think that, you know, Maslow's hierarchy is an attempt to explain how humans prioritize their needs as they develop. And you know, as, as we get more and more comfortable with technology, we, we do move up that hierarchy. And, and there is commonality. You know, when I was kicking off what became Daffy, I'm a big believer in user research and, and customer development and going out and talking to real people. And I talked to dozens of people about how they think about giving. And I asked three simple questions up front. You know, how much do you think people should give to charity every year? Turns out most people don't agree. They don't even use the same frame. Some people use percentages. Some people use numbers. Some people think it depends if you had a good year or a bad year. Everyone's, almost everyone seems to believe that giving is a good thing. Not everyone, but almost everyone. But they don't agree on how to structure the problem. And then the second question I asked people was, how much do you think you should give to charity every year? And the good news is, at least in an interview format, people are very consistent, right? Whatever they believe other people should do, they tend to believe that they should do or more. That was an interesting surprise. But the third question was the real shock for me, is that when I asked people how much they actually did give to charity the previous year, there was almost a really sad, guilty pause because most people give transactionally. They give when they're asked. And it was very clear that most people had a bar that they thought they should hit to be a good person to give, and they were not hitting it. And, you know, suddenly this just reminded me of, of basic behavioral finance. Like we already know this. How many people would save for retirement if you had to manually write a check or make a deposit each time, right? No, you automate it. You, you pull it out of, of your paycheck every few weeks. And that's how we get people to save for retirement reliably. And I said, you know, this there must be research that suggests this is true for giving. 
And we did. We found research. You know, it was built on Dr. Bernarci's research in 2004 around retirement savings. And it turned out in the University of Stockholm, they had done research that showed that when people pick a goal for giving, just like picking a goal for savings or other financial goals, they give 32% more. Now, in the U.S., individual giving runs at over $300 billion a year. And so the idea of like, wow, if we could lift that number, 32%, that'd be an extra $100 billion a year unlocked for charities, for organizations that need the money for their causes. That could be over a trillion dollars in a decade. That, that sounded to me like a venture class problem. That sounded to me like a big enough problem that you could build a great organization dedicated for decades to just solving that problem. And so a lot of that went into the early design of DAFI and, and, and the mission, right? DAFI is set up as a very simple mission, the idea that we are going to help people be more generous more often. And it's really been wonderful to design a financial product that actually isn't oriented around making the most money or running up the score, but around a very specific type of financial goal, which is not really a one-time goal, but kind of an ongoing way to live. And so that's been really, as a, as a product designer, that's been an amazingly fun problem space to work in. And we're really proud of the features and stuff we've been able to launch in just the first year out here. We think there's a lot of white space, a lot of innovation to happen using technology to help people be more generous and give what they think they should give. That's fantastic. It was a fascinating conversation, and there's so many other things I want to talk with you about, and let's plan to do a part two. But in the meantime, if our audience wants to learn more about Daffy or to find and follow you, where should they go? Well, I'm, I'm easy to find since I, I still tweet too much. Go to daffy.org, or you can download Daffy in the App Store. If you want, we're actually running a promotion right now. So if, if you go to daffy.org slash Adam Nash slash invite, you'll get $25 when you join to give to the charity of your choice. We're really big believers that if you try it out, it feels so good to have an app in your pocket that you can give money to organizations you care about. We're fairly convinced that once people try it, they'll, they'll stick with it. it. It feels good. Fantastic. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. No, Lex, thank you for having me and happy to do it again anytime. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the Fintech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time. <music>